Hello and welcome to another episode of Vagabond Actors Podcast, where we discuss all things acting. We focus on the craft and the mindset and the business side and pretty much every nook and cranny in between. My name is Gary Condes and I'm talking to you from London. Hello. And I'm joined as always by fellow acting teachers and coaches and actors and basically extraordinary human beings. Brian Casp, who's based in Prague. Hello, Brian. Hey, Gary. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing after all your travels? Good. I'm glad to be home, actually. It yeah. was nice to be away, but it's better to be back, especially with what's happening in Moscow at the moment. Well, maybe we'll get into that a bit later. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Sounds a bit crazy. Yeah, it was. And as always, we are also joined by Andrea Helene, who is in the sunny island of Mallorca, Spain. Hello, Andrea. Hello, guys. Greetings from Mallorca. Greetings <laughs> to Mallorca. Sí. Well, in this episode, we are going to discuss a listener's question. Um, it's great that you guys are sending in questions now. We're getting more and more, so keep them coming in. Yeah. And it's a very interesting follow-up to our recent episode that was entitled, What is Truth in Acting? And this question comes from an English actress who I've worked with, incidentally, called Folla Evans Akingbola. And she just follows up on that episode and puts forward some very interesting questions about truth and the problems that are faced with truth in acting, particularly in training and in rehearsals and on the job. So it's a very practical on the job type question. So we look forward to getting into that very soon. But before we do, let's check in with each other with what we've been up to with regards to our creative endeavors. So Andrea, why don't you kick it off? What you've been up to? Well, I had a self-tape audition opportunity this week, and it was a lot of fun, but rather stressful because I had a very, very limited window of time to prepare the sides once I received them. It's a project I can't talk about. I had to sign an NDA, and they have very strong opinions about that. So I will say that when I finally then got the sides and had my deadline, it turned out to be a matter of hours. And the S at the, at the end of the word hours is, uh, I'm hesitant even to say that. I think really, ultimately, I had less than an hour. So it was a great experience to have to read the scene. I think I read it through twice, got ready to tape it, and then laid down two takes and one slate, and that's what I had to submit to my representation. And, you know, I was really only nervous about the uploading of the footage, which did take quite a while. I wasn't really nervous about the content of the scene. I felt like I had a good sense of it, and I had fun with it. And it was a, just a reminder that I wanted to share, which is that sometimes you get into a bit of a pickle, and hopefully you can put all of the stress around the idea of the self-tape and the limitations that you're facing and the deadlines that you're facing, and you can just put that a little bit outside your sphere while you're working actually on the scene or scenes. And you can still create a room to move and to have fun and to have a spontaneous experience. And sometimes, honestly, you know, those first takes where you're working fairly spontaneously and instinctively can be, can be really good. So my advice is just if you get into that kind of a pickle, try to give your creative time a kind of a 
a lightness in the sense of saving your opportunity and reminding yourself that this is something that you want to do and, and finding a way to cherish the creative time, even under a stressful situation. It's interesting because, I mean, this happens a lot, more often than not, actually, how short a time yeah, people have got yeah. these days, particularly with self-tapes, to turn it around. And I suppose a couple of things. One, it's a bit of a test of where you're mm-hmm. at, really. You know, it's, it's not a bad thing. It's like, okay, well, you don't have time to think. You just <laughs> got to do it. So you really find out where you're at with your work and your technique mm-hmm. and yourself in relation to your technique, your mindset with it and how confident you yes. are and all the rest of it. But another thing that comes to mind is also, you know, that's all you've got. That's mm-hmm. all the time you've got. So do what you can. And you can come away thinking, well, I did what I could in the time yeah. given. So cut yourself some yeah. slack. That's right. Yeah, that's really that's important. Right. Because all the stress around the logistics of it can really cloud, you know, your takes. Where there's a part of you that's just so... <laughs> It can be really frustrating. And there's there can be a part of you that's really pissed off that you're in that circumstance. You're like, I've been here for three mm-hmm. days doing nothing, and then suddenly this. And that can, if you're not careful, infect the quality of what you end up submitting. So try and keep the logistical yeah. business aspect of it separate from your desire to poke and prod with the scene and dig into it and ultimately have kind of a good time. Yeah. The more fun you have Mm -hmm. with it, the more that will come across to the people that are watching. And I'm reminded of Evelyn Mm -hmm. Edwards. We did an interview with her, the great singing teacher and singer and actress. And she was talking about what people do in LA Mm -hmm. where they try to have one Mm -hmm. take on their self-tapes just so that they don't get in the habit of spending an hour or two recording and making every little detail perfect. Because, you know, if you get in the habit of spending a half hour on a two-page scene when you're recording it, which is very Mm -hmm. easy to do, and then you go, no, no, we're going to have an in-the-room audition and you get two takes doing it, you might get caught up Mm -hmm. because the preparation is totally different. And the other thing that we've talked about is the more you practice doing self-tapes, the more you'll be flexible when these kind of edge situations come about where you do have to do it very quickly or you do have to make quick decisions or you do need to make sure that your process for choosing the right take, putting whatever frame you want to around the actual MP4 or however you're Mm going to send it and then sending it off, you want to have that process be as Mm -hmm. quick as possible because you might not have the time. That's right. That's a great experience. I mean, it sucks, but it's a great experience. (laughs) It's one of those experiences that you're in the middle of it going, I need to talk about this on Tuesday in the podcast. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) But it it mirrors a lot of things that we've been saying all along is like, you know, you have the luxury of the classroom or training or just on your own. But then when you're on set and they turn the camera around in five minutes and you got to deliver or then they say cut and then you've got the director saying, I want you to do this, this and this. Okay, Mm -hmm. let's roll. Stand by. And it's like you're introduced to the glorious landscape of imaginary emotional preparation and you spend hours doing that and then you got to do it in two minutes. And it's (laughs) like you've got to put yourself under lab conditions. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I was going to talk about for my thing, that what happened yeah. this week, if I can jump in with that and yeah. kind of feedback. Because I was shooting yesterday, and I've been shooting on a film, which films, they take a lot more time. There's a lot more angles that they're shooting from, a lot more setups. And yesterday, it was TV. And, you know, they started with a really great shot that kind of ended somewhere. And then I was like, okay, this line is going to be covered this way. And then they're going to come around for this coverage. And then they're going to do that coverage. And they didn't, you know, they shot it. They did maybe four setups of the scene. And there was one part where I was looking over my left shoulder 
saying something and then I turned to say someone on my right and the note from the director was, can you say more of the line when you're looking over your left shoulder? And I thought, okay, that's weird. And then they just never covered it from the other side. You know, so you have this idea of what you think should Mm -hmm. happen. And then the reality is this particular director anyway, knew exactly what shots he was going to be on for which Mm -hmm. line. And he just shot those and that's it. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you don't get it in that one take, they're not going to get it. You know, another friend of mine in that same scene had a nice big monologue but the scene wasn't really about his monologue. That was kind of like the atmospheric thing that was happening, but the real tension from the story, from the plot was happening on other characters that were just listening to what he was saying. And they didn't really cover his speech close up at all because they knew that they weren't really going to be on it. And so that can happen too, where you're on a job and you think this is my big moment. And like we talked about with Daniel Johnson, when he was talking about showreel scenes, when you're on a set with a big actor or when you're with the star of the piece, they're going to cover that person and they might not cover you as much. You may never get your moment in the sun. And Gary, you talked about that with your client who was That's right, yeah. kind of frustrated yeah. by that, that they weren't getting yeah. the kind of coverage that they wanted. Yeah. It's like you got to prepare the hell out of your work and be totally on the ball And then a lot of it might not even make it. (laughs) No. (laughs) That is the reality. You can't, you don't want to be caught short. And when you're not caught short, you might be sold short. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Much like what Andrea was talking about with, you know, you have this short amount of time to do it in, which can be very stressful. And you can kind of let that stress overshadow the fun experience or the kind of artistic adventure that you're on when you go to work. And this kind of thing happens, the more fun you can have, just go, okay, well, that was it. And I'm doing my job. And if it doesn't end up on camera, okay. The more like that attitude you have, the less frustrated you'll be. Because if you had an attitude that was like, oh, they have to cover me and I'm not getting the coverage, you're going to be real frustrated a lot of the time. No, that's right. You're going to be unhappy. And and you might kind of go, well, what's the point in preparing so much if I'm not going to get it? But the thing is, is it, whatever gets in has to be of high quality. That's the way you're going to move forward and move up. Yeah, exactly. Gary, what about you? What's been happening in London? Well, a lot's been happening in London, but in relation to me, <laughs> I was prepping a client this week. She's got the lead in an indie feature film, and it was a really fun job to work on because she's playing a rather gregarious lead character, and she's not the most gregarious of actresses, naturally, human being, let's say. Perhaps she hasn't played someone this outgoing and gregarious before, so we, we had to deal with that. But the kind of main part of this work was... The character is a Greek expatriate and the story revolves around her real love of her home country, Greece, and she's missing it. And she goes back there and she has a massive family who are loud and argue and fall in love and have dramas and all the rest of it that you'd expect from a big Greek family. So our focus was really to focus on the love of the country and the love of the big family and getting into the detail of that. And we worked a lot on painting a series of vivid life events to fill in her love of Greece and then creating main shared events of family members to build a strong emotional history. And we've talked about backstory and history yeah. in a previous episode. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, well, because she came with all of that kind of stuff and I've written this and I've written that and I just basically chucked that out the window and I said, listen... <laughs> <laughs> it's shit. <laughs> I said, that's all well and good. You can you can read that before you go to bed at night. But while we're here, um, we were just careful not to create 
some kind of written diary that needs to be memorized and is just intellectual, working from an intellectual place. And we worked from an imaginary place and we worked to create imaginary shared events with family members, imaginary pictures and significant events and filling that with images and of sense data and sensory daydreams to creating a, a sort of living backstory. So memories that human beings have, we were basically creating a store of those, but not too many significant ones that ignited her in relation to certain family members. So one main event for each family member mm-hmm. and then very specific details And there were some that she kind of goes, well, I have certain places in my life, the actress speaking, that I really love. And there's certain details. For instance, there's these certain beaches that I love and these restaurants and the the music. And I was going, well, that's fine. You can draw on that if you like. And that was seeming to work. But we also basically just created from scratch and just used imagination completely, not necessarily substituting. And she'd always kind of substitute. And she was finding this really interesting because she was just inventing you know, everyone knows Greece to a certain extent, and she was creating her own lemon trees and her own smells and her own favourite coves of beaches and dances and these colourful family members that she had. So, you know, she used her own way of working, but I introduced her to a way of just pure imagination and, and filling in that with sense yes. data. So that was a lot of fun. That's wonderful. Hmm to do that. Nicely described the difference there between doing something that's academic and doing something that's alive and that brings you to life and that ignites your creativity a little bit differently. You know, rather than having to read and memorize something, which is going to be absorbed intellectually, right? We worked on her inner life without any writing, and that would be a a programmed Mm -hmm. store of her memories or history or emotional backstory, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. And she was quite surprised how it impacted on her. You know, I said, practice it every morning, get up, just like a meditation, you involve yourself and and you're slowly kind of absorbing and, and just guiding yourself into the character's thoughts or memories. We're not crowding the brain and we're not doing every part of her life. How could you? We're just getting significant shared events and one or two main events that you can draw on whenever it's necessary. And it started to make her more outgoing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Gary, are those events, the anchoring for those events, is that based on what she might need to do from the script? Or was it just kind of like general stuff? Did you look at the script and say, well, we need something that's going to liven you up for this moment? Yes. Well, both actually. First of all, it was a way of starting character work Mm -hmm. overall. Mm-hmm. and getting into her relationship to Greece, basically, mm-hmm. and to the country. However, there were moments in the script where she talked about, I love the ice cream from that shop. It reminds me of being a kid. Mm-hmm. So there were definitely certain moments in the script that called for an affinity to. Yeah. So we covered it in detail as an overall, and then that helped to actually bring to life certain moments that were required. Mm-hmm. If this actress is drawn to dance and music, did you incorporate music and movement in any way into this work? Yes, actually. I didn't to a great deal, but she was already doing that herself because there's a set piece in the movie where there is a traditional Mm. sort of Greek song and a dance. Lovely. So she was getting into all of that too. And, you know, going back to the research backstory biography episode that Mm -hmm. we did, that's a requirement in the script because there's an actual scene that requires 
requires that. So it's a natural follow on to research that and get involved in it and immerse yourself in that. Right. And yes, it may also help you even if it wasn't. But like always, it's about disciplining yourself with what's going to help with the task in hand. Uh, I didn't do too much work with her on that because she was already doing that herself. Mm Yeah, and it was refreshing not to have to kind of, you know, get into some really dark places with her <laughs> sometimes. This was like, this was yeah. sunny and Mediterranean. Think about was... ice cream. Oh, that's yeah. great. Oh, yeah. like I love ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> it's nice that it's not all dark and deep. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a very sunny, happy place. Yeah. This episode of the Vagabond Actors Podcast is brought to you by our friends at We Audition. Now, look, we all know that auditioning in a pandemic sucks. You can't find the right partner. And if you do find the right partner, how are you gonna connect with them in real time and have the read be seamless? Well, We Audition can help with that. They make it easy to find a partner and they take care of all of the technical stuff so that you can focus on what really matters, your audition and being awesome. Not only does We Audition allow you to find partners that can help you really kick ass, You can be a partner that helps other people really kick ass and get paid for it. There's other really great benefits to being a We Audition member. You can have one-on-ones with top casting directors. You can get career advice from industry professionals and a lot more. Right now, We Audition is offering a discount on membership to Vagabond Actors listeners when you sign up with the promo code VAGABOND25. So just go to weaudition.com, click on sign up, then click on the link where it says promo code. Put Vagabond25 in the box and you'll get 25% off your membership. Now, back to the show. So the question comes from Fola Evans Akingbala, who is a working actress and listens to our podcast all the time. In fact, she told me... Also has a great name. She also has a great name. I'm hoping to get her on, actually, as my next guest. That would be wonderful. She's got a great story. She's she's done some very interesting work. And interestingly for you, Pear, to know that this question came about because she was listening to, to the Truth in Acting episode, but she was listening to it during a break in her filming that she's doing presently. <laughs> Wonderful. That's brilliant news yeah. to know that one of our listeners is on the job listening Great. to our podcasts. Fantastic. Well, hello to you and to all of our working listeners. That's great to hear. Yes, and also hello to all you non-working listeners. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, follow's asking this. Hi, Andrea, Gary, and Brian. Thank you so much for the wonderful podcast. I was listening to the episode about truth in acting, and I had a couple of questions for you guys. Um, Brian said something like, show what you have, don't show what you don't have, because that's indicating. And so my question is, what happens if you don't have it when you need it? It's being truth, the truthful version of the emotion. For example, you're on set and in the moment you realize that for whatever reason you're not where you need to be and you don't have time to get there. Is this a situation where you would just focus on the objective and hope for the best? And then linked to that, what happens if you're in a scene where it, the writing specifically requires something? So for example, say the other character's line is, why are you so angry, Lily? Stop shouting, calm down. Right? The lines specifically require it. And then what happens if you're in that scene and you realize you're not truthfully there? Um, but you have to get there, even if it's not truthful. And I think Gary and I have spoken about this a little bit, but I'm just curious about all of your opinions on this. Do you think there's ever situations where a training program or a school kind of negatively focuses on truth in a way that creates a problem for 
individual actors, for example, actors becoming terrified to push anything because of a fear of not being truthful. I know we're always aiming for that truth. It's not that I want a way out of being truthful. I'm just curious about what happens when you're aiming for the truth, but you just don't hit it. So it's a great series of questions. Mm-hmm. It's really, it really great and getting right at the heart of the practical side mm-hmm. of this. Mm-hmm. I love it. Fantastic. Eight plus for the question. Gold star for the question. <laughs> yes. Brian, you got us into this pickle. Yes. You want to so, start getting us out of it? Let's- I, I love it. So there's a few thoughts that I have about this kind of question. And I always tell my students that what we talk about in class in terms of truth, you know, being honest and open and everything like that. And I always say, listen, guys, this is the ideal that we're going for. Ideally, we want it to be truthful all the time and always motivated by your real reaction. But if you get into a situation at work where you have to do something and it's not there, then fake it. I know that's not the answer that maybe you guys have, but if you have to perform and you've done your work and you don't have what it needs, you might need to just kind of fake it until it becomes real. You know, that that probably is not where you guys are going to go, but that's where I would initially land. I mean, it's not the ideal situation, but if you don't have it, you can fake it. When she asks about, well, what if I need to get angry and I'm not angry? This also sometimes comes up in class. Let's say someone is doing something, because this is a very Meisner way to look at things, but someone is doing something and you can see that their partner isn't really responding to it. Either they're not feeling it or they're not letting out what they feel. So it looks kind of like they're just bored or they're not paying attention or something like that. So, and I stop the exercise sometimes and I say to the person who looks like they're checked out, I say, well, what's going on? How do you feel about what's happening? Because this person's yelling at you or this person's crying or whatever is happening on the other side. And they say, well, I just don't have, I don't have a response to that. Well, how do you feel about not having a response to that? And if they say, well, I don't care about not having a response to that, I can bring it up another level and you'd say, well, how do you feel about being in an acting class and not caring about whether you have a response to something or not? And if they, you know, you could just keep going up the levels and you could get to, well, how do you feel about spending so much money on a class? (laughs) And nothing's happening. Does that piss you off? How do you feel about me asking you all these questions? And as soon as you get to a place where the actor that previously wasn't connected with anything that they were feeling or wasn't recognizing it, where they are responding in some way, then you go, okay, now look at them. Apply whatever that response was, even if it's to me poking at you, apply that to your partner. And now see what it does to you. And that usually jumpstarts the process. So if you're supposed to get mad in a scene and it's not happening, well, how do you feel about it not happening? Probably it pisses you off because probably you want to have something going on. And so if you're pissed off about it not happening, guess what? You can just apply that to your partner and you're, and you're off to the races. Those are the two things that I would probably start with, which is if you have to, you have my permission to fake it. <laughs> be presentational. It's not going to be forever. And also if you start to take in the wider reality, not just what is supposed to be happening in the plot, then most likely you're going to start to feel something. Cool. Just very quickly, and then I'll pass it on to Andrea. I mean, 
what can you do when you're in the moment and there's an audience there or the camera's rolling? Can you, you can't stop and say, can I just find the truth? No. You kind of have to fake it or you have to push through it. Yeah. But I've got more on that in a sec. So yeah, I'm sure, there's more to, I'm sure there's more specificity that we can get yeah, with that. But, but it's not just but, fake anything. Yeah, but, no, but you, you, I mean, what else can you do? I mean, it's like deal with it after the moment because you can't deal with it in the moment because yeah. it's like you just got to get through the fucking story yeah. or the scene, haven't you? You got to perform yeah, exactly, exactly. So, Andrea, what were your thoughts, initial thoughts? Well, I think it's a wonderful series of questions, follow. so thank you. Thank you for being an avid listener and for sending this along, because I feel like you are speaking to that in-between space, and it's really important to address it. Because, as Brian said, I mean, we're talking about sort of an idealized state of being, you know, where athletes talk about being in the zone. And you're not in the zone at every single moment. But what you do is you keep hitting the jump shots. Like, you just have to keep doing the thing that you're supposed to be doing. And sometimes you will end up in the zone. And I think, from my perspective, that thing that you want to then do, if you don't have the time to get organically to where you want to be emotionally is you do the jump shots. You do that thing that's called for in the moment. Is it that you are berating somebody? Is it that you are trying to convince somebody you're trying to negotiate with somebody? What is that human interaction about? What's that action verb that you're supposed to do? And if you can just put your attention on doing the thing and then also being the most active listener that you can be, to get your attention outside of the judgment that you have about where you are or are not emotionally and into your partner or partners, this sort of two-pronged approach will, I think, very quickly get you back into position so that you can organically be allowed to be moved by your partner into an emotional state. You know, if I'm in a scene and I'm arguing with Brian and I've stopped really listening and I'm thinking, oh God, I was so much better in rehearsals. And now I'm sure they're not going to give me another take on this. And like, that's what you're thinking when you're in the middle of the scene. What do you do? You get your attention back on Brian. You take him in as much as you can and you listen to him and you look at him and you let all of that homework that you did come back to you about what you think about every little thing about him. And then you get back into that thing. You get back into the argument, you get back into the negotiation, you get back into the coddling, whatever that, that verb is that you're supposed to be doing. It's about where your attention goes and then what you do with that attention and that interaction. And I think that's the quickest and most organic way to get you out of that self-conscious state of, oh my God, I, I should be better or I should be somewhere else emotionally and into the thing. And so maybe it's akin to what Brian's saying. And I don't think he's saying fake it so much as he's saying, do the thing, even if you don't have it. Brian, are you laughing at me? No, I'm laughing. Oh, okay. I'm laughing because I'm thinking about what we said in the in the yeah. truth episode, where yeah. I definitely did say, and I contradict myself constantly in my class. I'm sure it's very frustrating to be in my class, but I definitely did say, if you don't have it, don't do it because that's indicating. <laughs> so I know well, that it's confusing. What but, you said, yeah. what right? I think she she's. I think she's quoted you right. Is show us what you do have, not what you don't have, right? And mm-hmm. I think what I got from that was 
this idea that you don't need to do the kind of performance of an emotional life that you yeah. may not have. If, yeah. you, if your engine's not burning there, it's not that I have to fake the tears. It's that what I want to do is then acknowledge to myself, I'm not in a tearful state right now, but here's where I really am. And then you yeah. build on that by, again, putting your attention on your partners yeah. and putting your attention on doing that thing. And that, that will get you back to where you need to be emotionally. That's how I understood what you had to say about it. You want to be doing the thing, yeah. keeping yourself available to be moved and changed out of your present emotional state into something that the doing of it will bring you to it or your partner will bring you to it. To stay fluid. Yeah. Gary, do you want to have a go at this? Yes. Idea? Um, sure he does. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, exactly. God, no, I, and I, want to, I can't wait to hear it too. Yeah, no, I'm going to extend on both of your things really. And it's along the same lines. But when she asks, what if you don't have it when you need it? Mm-hmm. Now, there's two parts to that. One is when you're in the scene and you don't have it. And the other part I see is also before the scene begins and you're emotionally preparing and that's not happening. So I'd like to address those two situations. Mm -hmm. So firstly, when you're emotionally preparing before a scene to get you into the right emotional space or the feelings that are necessary for the preceding circumstances to the scene and you're not where you need to be, let's say you've practiced it at home or you're in preparation and rehearsals and it's, it's on fire, but for some reason before the cameras roll or before you go on set that particular time, it's just not happening. Well, all bets are off. Accept where you're at, work from where you're at as fully as you can, Get on stage or get in front of the camera, put your attention on your partner and let that connection take you where it takes you. Mm -hmm. If you're creating or trying to create significant deep emotions in your preparation, I'm not talking about in a scene, I'm talking about preceding circumstance, coming from somewhere, the moment before, whatever you want to call it. If you're trying to create something deep or big or significant and it's not deep and it's not happening and you're, let's say, dry Well, the one thing I found that's worked for me as a coach, but also as a director, is to leave it all, give up, give up the fact that it's not working, you're not in tears, or you're not raging with anger. Just remind yourself of what the scene is about for you, your objective, fall back on that. And this is, I think, echoing what Andrea is saying about doing putting yourself into the doing of something. And if you fall back on that, I find that it often helps to ignite something in you and emotion can develop out of this. It might require a little nudge and a little reminder that, okay, I'm not in tears or I'm not bursting with anger or I'm not laughing with joy, but you know what? I've got to get on. They're saying stand by on set. So Okay, panic stations. Well, don't need to panic. You've still got to tell the story. You've still got to perform the scene. So the next thing you can do, I think that can save you from going under or pushing either way you're going to go one way or the other as compensation is to go, I want this from you and I'm getting you to do this. Mm. And it still may be a bit drier than you want it to be. It won't be as juiced up, but at least you'll be telling the story and you'll be active. And Mm. I'm sure you guys have experienced that when you do that, something happens to you in combination with giving and receiving. Mm -hmm. It's kind of your lifeline. But then there's the other situation where you don't have it when you need it. And that is in a scene when you're in it, leading up to a significant moment of, let's say, emotion. 
and you're kind of growing aware that it's not there, it's not happening, and you're not getting to where you need to for the explosions to take place or the breakdown to take place, then again, I think this is a follow-on from what Andrea was saying, is just give yourself over to your actions or tactics, if that's what you call them. You see, when you're firing emotionally and the juices are flowing, things are happening in a state of inspiration. And, you know, all the other elements like objectives and tactics and actions, they act as a conduit for your feelings. They kind of, everything just merges and it all just flows. Great. But when it doesn't, you still have your actions and tactics in place that will carry you, keep you focused, keep you driven and committed to your partner because your tactics are in relation to your partner. They force you to drive into your partner. So, You may not be as juiced up as you want to be, or you may not even be building up to the big event. But if you stick to your actions and commit to them fully, then you're still maintaining the storytelling. And go back to what Brian said is you still have to perform. Mm -hmm. So I find that's, let's say, your parachute, your safety belt, if you like. They should be there anyway, even if you are juiced up or not. But they may just require a little more attention or at least awareness of Because when you're flowing, you're not necessarily aware of it. But you might just go, I'm not juiced up. I'm not flying. I'm not needing where I need to go. Okay, but I'm going to attack. I'm not angry, but I'm still going to attack this person or bully them. And that carries you a lot of the way through. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know what it reminds me of, Gary? It's that story that you told where you had a certain moment that was supposed to happen at a certain time in the script. Mm -hmm. And then as you did the play... Yeah. That moment happened at different places in the scene. Yes, that was um, the three sisters, two and three sisters. Yeah. You know, and, and that's kind of what you're talking about to a certain extent, which is as much as you would want to have the moment happen where it's supposed to happen, quote unquote, supposed to happen. You sometimes don't have a lot of control over that. And in fact, I think what we were talking about in the truth episode is you, wouldn't, you really shouldn't be trying to control your emotions that fine tuned. The emotions happen as a result of all the stuff that you guys are talking about. They happen as a result of the interaction mm-hmm. and a result of mm-hmm. the actions that you're doing or the objections that you have. You know, and, and you might run into a director that's like, no, I need that moment to happen now. And then you fall back on the stuff that we've been talking about up until now in this episode. But if you have a director that is hip enough to recognize that whatever you're going to bring is okay, Mm -hmm. then follow the path that you've laid out for yourself in your preparation Mm -hmm. and let the emotions do whatever they need to do. Yeah. Come on to do, not to feel. Yeah. And then you'll probably end up feeling a lot. That's yeah, exactly, exactly right. That's exactly <laughs> you know, right. And just to pick up on her other half of that is, yeah. what if on top of that, it's the kind of scene that really requires something like, why are you so angry, Bob? So what mm-hmm. she's talking about is you're in the scene and you know that you've got to hit some kind of anger. Yeah. And it's not it's not happening and the gods aren't with you. And, you know, I think I've used this before. I'd be surprised if I haven't this example. But Dustin Hoffman speaks very eloquently about this. And he he talks about a moment. Is it the Rain Man moment? I can't remember what film it relates to, but he's just talking about feeling it, basically. And he says, if my scene is about throwing someone out of the house and I'm not feeling it as I'm having this argument and I I'm having the argument because I'm a diligent actor and I'm still telling the story, I'm not stopping things from happening, but I'm just not feeling it. And I'm aware that I'm not feeling it. Mm -hmm. And I've got to really shout at this person to throw them out the room, let's say. But he gets up in the middle of this explanation and then he shouts, Mm -hmm. get the fuck out of this room now. I'm warning you, get out now. And then he sits back down and he said, I didn't feel that before I did it, but now I'm feeling something. 
and it kind of breaks the spell. And what's important, and this is what we're talking about, if you know what your action is to attack, to diminish, to throw out, whatever you want to call it, and you commit to that even though you're not feeling it, first of all, it gets you somewhere rather than being static and worrying and self-conscious, as you say, Andrea. It gets you somewhere, and it gets you somewhere by shaking things up yeah. And by shaking things up, you're no longer where you were, which was the block, but it's now generated a feeling. Yeah. And just as importantly, it gives your partner what they need for the scene to carry on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is what you're talking about also, Brian, when you're saying faking. I think you mean it's like just commit to the doing of it, even though you might be aware that you're not feeling it. And the thing is, is what measure are you using to decide what you're not feeling? Was it yeah. the last night's performance or yes. was it the last take? Mm-hmm. I think you'll mostly find that a feeling is generated from the commitment to the action if you really go yeah. for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the That's result. Right. That's what I meant. It's the result. Yeah. yeah. Not right. not the place you start. Yeah. yeah. It's important not to think about where you're at, but to fully commit to do your action. Yeah. Sometimes you are aware of it. When you get experience, you are aware of it and you're still able to carry on mm-hmm. and commit to your action. And that this will stop you from self-consciously spiraling or pushing or forcing. It means I'll just commit to my action. That's right. Actions are an actor's friend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you've done all that preparation, if you've done your homework, and you have a habit of being emotionally available, listening, being responsive, all of the things that we talk about here, you might have a moment or two every once in a while where you're just like, it's not there or something in your day has been taking over your concentration and you're just not in the right place. And that happens. And we've talked about that stuff. But in all likelihood, even though you're not feeling that you're being responsive, you probably are if you have built up a habit of being a responsive human being. And that's what we do as actors is we build up that habit and we build up that habit. So you might be actually doing it without actually knowing that you're doing it. (laughs) And if you're working in front of a camera, that might be enough. You might not have to do something huge or have a huge response to tell that bit of the story. You know, I would kind of give yourself a break. (laughs) You bring what you bring and commit to it, like you said, Gary, and that's fine. If a director says, I need more here or there, then you can maybe adjust to that and say, I'm going to take it more seriously, or I'm going to take it in this particular way, or, you know, there's, we've talked about ways of doing that. But I just think that if you are working as a responsive, listening, caring actor in general, you probably aren't going to come in empty. Even if you do, you're able to let what is there affect you. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You're, you won't stay empty for long. Exactly. Yeah. If you've done the work, which is why you do the work. Right. It's right. really, you, you do the work really just to mitigate any problems. It's just there just in case <laughs> there's any problems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, you walk that's, on. I mean, that's what technique is, right? Yeah. yeah. That's That's what craft is. It's when you aren't inspired, you Mm -hmm. have the craft. That's right. Which is why actors that haven't trained and don't have the craft, they're uh, screwed when it comes (laughs) to that. Because one day it won't work. And then what do you do? It won't work. And then they have no fail safe. There's nothing to just keep them alive until the moment something ignites them. One slight aside about the value that the three of us all place on the importance of the doing and the actions or tactics. You all know Tony Robbins' work, of course, major motivational speaker, global leader. I attended actually one of his events in Los Angeles, and it was much more informative and productive and interesting than I expected it 
would be. But one of the things that becomes really clear is when you're talking about motivating people into a certain kind of emotional state. In that case, they want to motivate you into a state of openness and awareness and excitement about possibility and stuff. But they really get you moving. Like you don't sit still very long. You're up on your feet, you're dancing. There's a whole soundtrack that their seminars are go to. And one of his favorite speakers gets up and he talks about if you feel still and stuck, you move the largest muscles in your body, which is your ass. Mm -hmm. And you get your ass moving. He calls it assitude. And he says, there's no (laughs) way if you are in a rut, there's no way you can move your ass and not change what's happening to you emotionally. There's a direct correlation between the movement of the muscle and the emotional shifts. And so Mm. I'm reminded of that when we talk about the importance of doings, that literally uh, as you engage in something, your whole physiology can change. And you just have to be open to making that decision and that commitment and then enjoying the shifts and moving with that. But yeah, try it. Next time you're in the dumps, get that ass moving and see what happens. Trust. Yeah, there's lots of physiological things that one can mm-hmm. do. Those are good factors to investigate too, just in case yes. they, you know, aren't firing and they can just give a little trigger, a little switch to something, right. you know, because I certainly get very emotional when I get my ass in gear. It's just <laughs> getting my ass in gear. That's, 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 <laughs> I've got to do a prep to get my ass in gear. Then I get oh, I prepped. Know. You know, I yeah. know. Yeah, that's a good point. Though. Thank you. Should we take a look at her other question about training and whether that may pose a danger to actors who are afraid to push because they're afraid to not be truthful. What do you think yeah. about that? It's great to go into it further because we have talked about this to a greater or lesser yeah. degree at various stages mm-hmm. because this truth, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, it's the Holy Grail and it needs to be held with kid gloves and it's sacrosanct and don't break it. That can act as a bit of a shackle mm-hmm. in some places that are very dogmatic about it. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. Of course, you know, we're all in search of truth and believability and all the rest of it. But actors can be too cautious in the pursuit of truth or what they think is their truth. And they get wrapped up and confused with comfort and being comfortably natural in themselves. And Mm -hmm. she makes a point by bringing this up. And I've experienced this, one, as an actor and two, as an observer in classes where there's almost a suffocation of expression in the search of being truthful and not failing and not being able to know what it's like to fake to say you have a measure and a context of what is too much and what isn't too much. And, you know, it goes back to what Brian was saying, although not literally about, you know, I give my students license to fake. And, you know, we've talked about this before. And I know you've said this before, Brian. It's like, mm-hmm. just scream and shout, even if you're not feeling it and just yeah. crunch through the gears and get beyond your restrictions. Mm-hmm. And how can you do that if you're taking minuscule baby steps all the time with someone watching over and you go, nope, stay in lane. Stay in the truthful lane. No, Mm. stay in the truthful lane. And don't get me wrong, some actors need that. You know, the ones who are, look at me, look at me acting. (laughs) But then there's people who need drawing out. And you go, you know what? I don't care whether you're feeling or not. Imagine you're in a stadium and shout your fucking lungs out. And it's a balance of truth without the loss of expressivity. Mm -hmm. You've got to push your expression. Because when we talked about it in the, in the truth episode, you know, dramatic truth is a particular thing. It's a thing which is different to perhaps everyday living civilian truth. Mm-hmm. And she's definitely got a point where it can be a problem, not in all training and probably not most training, but you can be suffocated by it the search for truth, that it dampens one's expressivity, mm-hmm. which comes in many guises. Yeah. You know? I'm trying to think about the difference between what I'm about to say and what I do. 
because I don't feel like I do this. And we ta- I think we talked about this in the bad teacher episode. So if you go back and listen to the episode on what yeah. a bad acting teacher is like, then this might shed a little bit more light on it. But if you find that in a class, there's a lot of weight put on deep emotional truth that you have to like rip your heart open and, and you have to really show everything and get into all the deep, dark corners. And if you don't do that, or if you can't do that, then you're not being truthful and you're being bad as an actor. Then I think that's something This may not be exactly what she's asking about, but that's something that I would see as a problem even though I think in in every acting class, you do want to take steps into that uncomfortable place where, you know, you don't want to just stay comfortable in your normal everyday behavior. And you do want to explore things that are deeper or more personal within you. But I, I feel like when you hold up truth on a pedestal, you really want to make sure that it's, I don't know, like a clean truth and not some like, we've got to get in there and we've got to get real down and dirty. And if you're not, you're not truthful and then you fucking suck. You know, I don't know. Am I, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm being very clear about my, my thing. Maybe you guys, maybe you could. Yeah, me. no. Yeah, but I, like, yeah, I hear exactly what you're saying. Then it becomes about the personal investigation of one's feelings as opposed to truth in relation to communication and expression. In the moment. You know, yeah. and in the in moment. The moment. And exactly. Yeah. And then it becomes like, I heart my feelings. Yeah. Which these institutions or these training places or teachers, it's like, you know, what you get at the end of the class is a fucking t-shirt with a heart on saying, I heart my feelings. And that's basically it. And it yeah. just becomes an individualistic journey to one's kind of therapeutic expression as yeah. opposed to communicating truthfulness in a scene with somebody else about mm-hmm. something in the moment, like you say. Yeah. Let's face it. The biggest fear for the actor is being shit, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Which basically means you're either not believable, you're overacting or you're fake. That is the biggest fear for the actor. Mm-hmm. So as a result, most actors become cautious, often too cautious, and they become shackled by this fear. You know, I say to actors, I say, look, it's particularly in training, it's like find out where the boundaries are. Because what is truthful in a national theatre of 500 seats or 1,000 seats, when you're playing King Lear and shouting at the top of your voice, allay the storm and the rain will stop or whatever it is, and mm-hmm. the rain will fall, that's very different to just having a cup of tea with someone in a Woody Allen movie or a mm-hmm. gritty movie. Yeah. And if you're always just playing very light or sort of gritty Safty Brothers stuff, then you won't get to the Shakespeare. You won't get to that grand poetic truth. Mm-hmm. And that means that you have to have some kind of leeway to fail, to be fake, to push the boundaries and feel what fake is because... What's fake to someone is not fake to someone else. I often say to my actors, I say, look, if someone says to you, can you bring it down? That's not as bad as it sounds to your delicate actor's ears. Mm-hmm. At least you're doing something and they're just adjusting you. That's a whole lot better than can you give me this? That's hell. That's death. I mean, you know, can you give me something? They're actually saying, I like what you're doing. Just bring it down for my taste or for this style or whatever. At least you're putting it out on the table. And then because it's a collaborative thing, then they can adjust you, and but at least you've brought it. So the, the holy grail search for the truth can actually be an inhibitor. So what's the way out of that, or how can one combat that? Well, there's two things that come to mind. I mean, one is, just as a little aside almost, we I know we've all seen plenty of Meisner exercises in our lives, and boy, when your partner says, I don't believe you, 
I mean, if there's anything that gets somebody going and out of their shell and into action and emotion, it's being told by your partner, you know, that you're not believable. You're right, Gary. It's a very, it's a very, very sensitive place. And it's amazing how quickly sometimes people get poked and prodded by just that uh, suggestion that what they're doing rings fake to their partner in the moment. It can be quite a profound moment of action. But I think that it's important from an educator's point of view that we establish respect for the pursuit of the craft and the practice of it and the safe space among one another. And you're right, Gary, it's not trying to create emotion for the idea of it itself. It's not just about becoming deep in ourselves and then walking away with a big heart t-shirt. It's becoming more nimble, emotional beings so that we can more easily express humanity in our work. And what a, what a teacher is, a good teacher, I think, is looking for and when, they're, when they're talking about the truthfulness of something. Let's say the teacher is questioning the truthfulness of your imaginary circumstances that you've created for an improvisation. What they're digging at is the ways that we see your body's knowledge of what's really true comes through. So if you've set up mm-hmm. something in a half-assed way, and then you're sort of going through it as if it's really been set up well, and there's a forcefulness to it that we can sense, you know, that's when we call out, look, you know, you, 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 you came at this in a half-assed way. And so your body knows it. And that's why you're pushing. And that's why you're not relaxed in your work. And so do the work ahead of time so that you can have a truthful experience and it looks something more human and you can be more easily affected and you can be nimble in your work. That's what we try to get at, having movement in your emotional life and spontaneity in your emotional life. And so that hopefully that pursuit and that study and that practice helps students to see that we embrace all of the emotional colors of the human experience. We want to see it, but we also want to see it come up in an organic way. And we want to help you move into a space where you feel free and safe to explore all of those different colors. And you are creative in your choice of actions and activities and scene work and helping yourself to become more alive and lively and therefore interesting. Not that, not that you enter the stage thinking, I need to be interesting. Instead, you set yourself in a creative course and then you get into a state of play and maybe it'll be interesting. Generally speaking, I would say that the reason I was so drawn to the Meisner work initially was because when I walked into Playhouse West to audit my classes, and I'd been auditing a number of classes when I first arrived in Los Angeles, I was seeing a lot of fakery. And I was seeing teachers applauding forced work. Mm-hmm. And it did not suit me at all. And when I saw the Meisner work, I saw real human beings on stage having a real authentic experience And I saw a classroom where it was simple and open and free. And, you know, there were definitely guidelines and he could come down on them, but he was going after something that in principle was really quite beautiful. And I recognized that immediately. And that's the thing. I think we recognize it when it's, when it's, when it works nicely, we, we see that. And so hopefully, you know, in a training environment, you are, 
supported by somebody who's really going for developing your toolkit. And part of that is developing your emotional life. So can it go wrong? I'm sure it's gone wrong in plenty of classrooms. But hopefully you are finding a space where it's not about being afraid to push. It's about learning how to be adventurous and then trusting yourself that you can develop your own sense of truth so that you're really comfortable with really doing just what your partner makes you do and adhering to the emotional imaginary circumstances that you've created for yourself. I know I've gone on way too long. No, it's good. But I'm trying to get to a quality of a classroom that is positive in terms of developing a sense of truthfulness and a fondness for truthful, reactive behavior. Yeah, absolutely. Here, here. And and one that pushes you so Mm -hmm. that you get to experience boundaries which might feel fake or not fake and you Mm -hmm. fail and you try so that you are pushed out of your comfort zone but you know your own habitual Mm -hmm. behavior and your own natural rhythms Mm -hmm. you got to be pushed because you know ultimately i think actors learn a whole bunch of technique but they're learning their way of putting it together really Mm -hmm. and how do they know how to put it together and how far they can go unless they've tried it unless they've been pushed and gone God, that was awful. It's the classic thing, isn't it? You learn probably the most when you stink, yeah. when you do fake it or you do go, oh, yeah, that was, oh, that was icky. I felt it. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, now you know what it's like and you'll be able to navigate that and you'll get maybe to the same level of high expression without it feeling icky because you'll do the work that will fill that. Yes. Yeah. If you're not being pushed in various directions, it's not a sin to feel fake in an exercise, is learn from it because that's where you're excavating yourself. So you've got to come up against walls and then break those mm-hmm. walls down. Yeah. You know, we're talking about depth and range and that can only happen. You're not born with it. Only one or two people are born with that. You've got to find your depth and range through mm-hmm. chiseling away at the boundaries. That's right. And that can only happen if you take risks and find a barometer and a measure against yeah. what is truthful and what isn't That's within right. certain circumstances. Because what's truth in a farce isn't truth in a naturalistic thing. That's why you yeah. should do many plays and read many styles. Mm-hmm. Yes. Paula, thank you. Yes. Okay. So then it just remains for us to talk about um, a recommendation that we have, a top tip of something that you've heard or read or listened to that you'd like to share with the listeners and has inspired you. So, Brian, why don't you go first? Great. Okay. So this is, a lot of people have been talking about this, but I just, even today, introduced myself to it. And that is Ted Lasso on Apple TV. It's awesome. Jason Sudeikis, he's an American football coach who gets thrust into the world of English football. And he is like, just, it's an amazing characterization on his, on everyone's part, but especially on his part, where he is, you know, that kind of happy-go-lucky, like always sunny kind of guy, kind of American guy, bringing that Amer- that ho- good, wholesome American <laughs> kind of outlook on everything to the world of English football. And it's sweet and it's funny and it's a little bit cringy at times, but you just, uh, you, you just immediately fall in love with almost all of the characters. And it's great. And it's uplifting. I, I love it. I love it. So I highly recommend Ted Lasso, on uh, Don't Tell Anyone, but I didn't actually watch it on Apple TV. 
but, um, <laughs> but that's where it officially is on Apple TV. And it might be somewhere else in England. I'm not sure, but it's an Apple TV product. Cool. I yeah. didn't I didn't know about that one. And oh, it's great. It's, you would love it, Gary. You'll yeah, love it. Sports and football. I'll be well into that. Great. Yeah. Yeah. And great <laughs> acting too. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That's a double win. Yeah. <laughs> Andrea. I actually have a book to recommend this week. It's a memoir uh, called Live Your Life, My Story of Loving and Losing Nick Cordero. It's written by Amanda Klutz and her sister, Anna Klutz. Uh, Amanda Klutz, it's become a rather public story. She is a former actress and dancer, and she was married to Nick Cordero, who is a Broadway performer who contracted COVID last year and sadly passed away. So it's a memoir of the story. And it's, re- it's really, really well written, you guys. And I'm listening to the audible version. As you know, I like to listen to my books on tape, if possible, when I'm driving. And she's reading it, and it's very moving. And there are just a few passages where it's very emotional for her to do the reading. And it's quite, I don't even know the word to say, it's very powerful to listen to someone tell the story. And as we've talked about before, when we're talking about, you know, the emotion of our work to try and not cry, but sometimes the description that she's coming up with is just too much. It's just too powerful or she's reliving something and she's sort of acting it out, but it it comes out very naturally. It's a very thoughtful and lovely reading that she gives of the book. And it's a very powerful story of attitude and empowerment and prayer and loss and everything and really, really fighting hard for somebody and for your life. So I think it's a very strong book. And if it's something that you think you'd be interested in, I definitely give my thumbs up to that. Live Your Life, My Story of Loving and Losing Nick Cordero. Cool. That sounds very good and very heavy. It is, but she has so, I mean, so much of it takes place while he's in the ICU for months. But the story about how they've come together, intertwined, and her family, she has a very, very strong family. They're very connected to one another. And so it's, there's actually a great deal of inspiration in it. But yes, I'm getting to the very end of the story now. And I had to turn it off today. I just couldn't. Uh, I needed to be driving or sitting uh, in a certain kind of way in place to be listening to the next section. But it's it's a very strong story. And it's good storytelling to listen to it as well. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about you, Gary? Yeah, well, it's not often that I recommend a english tv series or an english production but our very own bbc has made a fantastic tv mini series it's just a three-parter now obviously it's on the bbc and it's shown so everyone in the uk can see it although i'm sure because of the nature of the production it will be available elsewhere because it was such a big thing and it was called time and it's set in a male prison uh-huh. and it stars sean bean and stephen graham oh and it's about Sean Bean's character. It's amazing because Sean Bean is Sean Bean and he's this gruff Yorkshireman who doesn't really change his accent, whether he's in an American movie or an English movie or whatever movie. But he's always good and solid and yeah, he has a lot of things going for him. But in this, I've never seen him. This is his best thing that I've ever seen him in. And in this, he's very, very internalized. And he plays a teacher who's had an alcohol problem and he was driving under the influence of alcohol and hit and run a young kid on a bike and he gave himself up under the guilt and he serves time. And this is what real good drama does, whether it's TV or film. If you really want to see someone who 
is suffering under the guilt, which is the best advertisement for not drinking when you're driving, is mm-hmm. this. Uh, it's such a great performance. And Stephen Graham, um, who's often seen in Scorsese movies playing hoods and stuff, he plays a pris- prison warden. And, you know, they're very sort of working class characters. But if we're talking about truth, actually, this is a very contained, internalised truth mm-hmm. between these, the style of the piece. And it's, it's particularly Sean Bean is really soul-searching and it's very very nuanced and it's 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 actually riveting and his time in prison and then his his the friends he makes and the problems he encounters as really someone who isn't really meant to be there but he just had an alcohol problem and killed someone and so he he was sentenced for hit and run he's not a a thug or a hood or anything like that but it's just a very real gritty touching absorbing miniseries with a sort of performance of a lifetime from sean bean i believe so that's my Great. top tip. It's called Time. Great. Oh, that sounds really good. Cool. Well, I will wrap up from here. So uh, the question today was just fantastic. We would love more questions to come in. I understand <laughs> based on my own uh, editing capabilities and the drive that I have to edit that the episodes are coming out more slowly than they were in the first 50 episodes. These these past ones have been coming out more slowly. Hopefully I'll pick it up as summer happens, but um, yeah, I can't promise anything, but uh, we do really, really appreciate getting questions in from the listeners and especially questions that come from a very practical place, whether you're in a class or on a set or in a theater, or just having a thought about something that you would you would like to know more about in the, the process of acting. Maybe you're not an actor and you're listening and you just have a question about some aspect of the acting process, then definitely get in touch with us. We're at Vagabond Actors on Instagram and on Twitter, and we have a Facebook page, and we would love to hear from you. But if you want to keep up with us as individuals, we all have very active social media accounts. Andrea, what is your social media presence like? Where can people get a hold of you or, or see what you're up to? <laughs> I am on Instagram at Andrea Helene 3 and on Twitter at Andrea underscore Helene. Fantastic. And Gary, what about you? Yeah, I'm on social media. It's uh, at Gary Condes on all Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or visit my website, have a look around, and drop me a message, garycondes.com. Excellent. And I am at Brian Casp on Twitter and on Instagram. Otherwise, until next time, we uh, hope you stay safe and we hope you stay creative and let us know how you're doing. Take care, everyone, and goodbye. Thanks, folks. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody.